This morning our sermon text is Ephesians chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. These are the words of God. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with promise, that it may be well with you and you may live long on the earth. And you fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. Our God and Father, we pray that by the Spirit you would open the word to us, bring it to us with power and glory. Let it wash over us and transform us. Lord, that we might imitate you and be faithful with the little ones you have entrusted to us. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I've called this message, Laying the Foundation in the early years because the early years are when you lay the foundation in your children for everything else that God calls you to build into them. While every stage of parenting is equally important, not every stage is equally foundational. If you're building a house, when you lay a foundation... It has a shaping effect on that house, even though once the house is built, you can't even see the foundation anymore. In the same way, what you do in the early years with your children, laying the foundation in them, is going to have a shaping effect on them. And yet, it's easy for us to fall into the temptation of not taking the early years as seriously as we should. Because, let's face it, Parenting little ones is not the most interesting aspect of parenting. It's a lot of grunt work. It's kind of like foundation work for a house. You're moving dirt around. You're pouring gray concrete. It's not the most interesting and sophisticated part of building a house, and yet there is nothing more critical. Another reason why we tend to not take it as seriously as we should and engage the way we should is because we can kind of slide by in the early years because when children are that small, they're completely dependent on you. You completely control their worlds. And at that little age, they're not in a position to make any life-changing bad decisions. Furthermore, let me add that when they're that little, there's a cuteness factor. And that cuteness factor can even be present When they're exhibiting a bad attitude or bad behavior, it's cute. So how big of a deal could it really be? Well, to really answer that question, you need to play it forward and imagine the same attitude and behavior when they're 16. And ask yourself, is it still cute or is it scary? Because at 16, they can make life-changing bad decisions. And if they're really determined to do so, you're not going to be able to stop them. Even in strong Christian homes, in good Christian churches, in good Christian schools, you can have some challenges in the teen years. And our culture today is not your friend. And it's not the friend of your children Your teens can face some whitewater, even if you've brought them up well, good Christian homes, good church, good school, they can still face whitewater as they're in that stage when they're being first introduced to the full force 
the full force of the world, the flesh, the devil. And they have to encounter that. And so you can have a situation where your teen is in the whitewater and you need to pull them to shore. You're not going to be able to push them to shore. You're going to have to pull them. And you need some handles to grab so you can pull them ashore. When do those, what do those handles look like? Because by the nature of the case, when they're in the white water, their own sense of God, their commitment to God, their understanding of his word, their understanding of wisdom, they get disoriented, and that's not necessarily left to themselves going to bring them through. But things like respect for you, even though it may be deep down, caring deep down beneath the surface what you think, that's a biblical handle. Deep down, not wanting to disappoint you, that's a biblical handle. The sheer habit of obeying you, that's a biblical handle. And the earlier you install those handles, and the more persistently you reinforce them, the stronger those handles are going to be if your child ever needs you to grab them and pull them to shore. So parents, there is nothing more important than fully engaging and laying a biblical foundation in the early years. Everything to follow will be so much easier if you do. And it will be much harder if you don't. If you're building a house and you fully engage and really take it seriously when you're doing that dirt work and pouring that old gray concrete, you take it seriously so you have a good foundation. It is level, it is square, it is strong, there's no cracks in it. If you have that foundation as you continue on in the more interesting parts of building a house, framing up all the walls and windows and doors, the finishing aspects, all the beautification aspects, you can make a mistake because you know, parents, that we do make mistakes. You can make a mistake framing a window. You can make a mistake hanging some cabinets doing some crown molding, some finish work. If your foundation is good, you can back up and you can reframe that window. You can back up and you can reinstall that crown molding or rehang that cabinet. Foundation is good. House is strong. But if you don't have a good foundation, it's not level, it's not square, there's cracks in it, you're going to have constant problems with the framing and with the finishing. And you're going to have to leave what you should be doing at that stage, either framing or finishing. You're going to have to leave that work. And you're going to have to go down underneath the house and constantly be trying to remediate the problems with the foundation. The investments you make in the early years in terms of obeying God, imitating Him, doing the hard grunt work, they pay dividends over time more than any other investment you can make. It's just like with money. It's not the big investment you make late in the process. 
It's those consistent investments you made early in the process. Those are the ones that are going to pay you the most dividends over the longest period of time. So parents, enjoy the early years. Enjoy the cuteness. But take them seriously. Don't cut corners. Don't slide by. Make the investment. Pour a strong biblical foundation in those Little ones, this is the foundation stage. And before we go on and look at this in more detail, let me just say that you might be here, you you might have children that are past those early years. Um, You may have children that are grown. You may be a grandparent at this point. And as we go through this, you may realize different ways. You go, oh, well, I fell short on that, and I fell short on that. You know, it's not possible for us to delve into God's Word on any aspect of our lives without being convicted again and again and again of how we fell short. It's the same for all of us. It's the same thing with me. As I prepare sermons, as I go into the Word of God, it's not possible for me to do that without being convicted of different ways. It's like, well, I fell short on that. And so I just want to remind everybody, no matter where you are, no matter how old your kids are, wherever you are, maybe your grandparent, you have kids who are having kids, God picks us up where we are. Not where we should be. God picks us up where we are, not where we should be. Now, that doesn't mean that all the consequences of our various shortcomings are going to magically vanish. But the key is to walk with God now. So genuine discipleship now. Remember, we can't sow perfection. It's not possible. What we can sow is genuine, heartfelt discipleship, walking with the Lord, obeying Him, imitating Him. You know, when you, um, if you go in the hospital because you're really sick, you have some injury, before they even diagnose what's wrong with you, the first thing they do is put that IV in your arm. And they get that fluid drip, drip, dripping into your bloodstream. Because that fluid is health. Before they even know what the problem is, get health into the bloodstream. Now, it doesn't immediately cure you. It's a drip, drip, drip process, but that's health. Get health into the bloodstream. And that's what we want to do with our families, with our children, with our own spiritual lives, wherever we are, whatever the need, get the IV Get the biblical IV into the arm, into the bloodstream. Drip, drip, drip. Health, discipleship, faith, walking with the Lord. Get that into your family. Get that process going. So parenting little ones, the foundational trait that God calls for in little children and actually children of every age, but it looks a little different when they're little and when they're older, the foundational trait God calls for in children is honoring and obeying their parents in faith, which is God's own way of leading them to honor and obey Him 
in faith. We see that in our text. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, that is, in faith, for this is right. He quotes the fifth commandment. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with with promise, that it may be well with you and you may live long on the earth. This is the path of honoring and obeying God. This is the path of blessing. And we see the same pattern in Proverbs chapter 3. There in verse 1, Solomon teaches his son to honor and obey his believing parents. Verse 1, My son, do not forget my law, but let your heart keep my commands. For length of days and long life and peace they will add to you. Then in verse 5, he builds on that by teaching his son to honor and obey God. You see how one leads seamlessly to the other, and that's God's way. Verse 5, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct your paths. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and depart from evil. So you see that Solomon is training up his son to walk with God, and his son's a teenager at the time he's speaking to him here. He's training his son to walk with God in adult-level obedience and discipleship before he leaves Solomon's home. Now, let's consider an example of what that means for his son to walk while he's still in Solomon's home with an adult level obedience and discipleship. Proverbs 6.25. Solomon here is talking to his teenage son about a sexually provocative woman who is beautiful, but she is intentionally using sex appeal to be sexually provocative and to draw male attention in that way. This is what Solomon tells his teenage son. Do not desire her beauty in your heart. That's adult level discipleship, dedication to God and obedience. Where does his teenage son get that? Does it magically show up at 16? You know it does not. That is the fruit of faithful biblical parenting and training. And the first step is having a biblical idea and standard for obedience. So let's ask the question, what is obedience? What does it look like? And let me just remind you here of Nathan Dowd's sermon back on July the 30th of this year. It's available at the church website. He dealt with this and preached a great sermon, so I would urge you go back and listen to that again. So what I'm saying here today about obedience, I'm meshing in with what Nathan said and building on that. It's interesting that the Greek word for obedience actually pertains to a servant whose job it is to answer the knock at the door. You have a servant, and one of their jobs is to answer any knock at the door. Their job is to obey the knock. That's the way the Greek works. And we have a wonderful illustration of this in Acts chapter 12 with a servant girl named Rhoda. She was a servant 
at the house of Mark's mother. Many disciples are gathered at Mark's mother's house to pray for Peter, who has been arrested by Herod. Meantime, an angel has come and delivered Peter from prison. So now Peter, being out of prison, comes to the house of Mark's mother. And in that day, they would have like the door to the house, but they would have a courtyard out in the front, so you'd have a gate. So Peter has to come to the gate and knock at the door of the gate. So he's some distance from the house. So he's out there knocking on the door of the gate. And because it's a distance and you have a bunch of disciples in the house, no one hears Peter's knock. No one, that is, except for Rhoda. Because, you see, that was her job. And she wanted to hear that knock. And so she has her ears always open, listening for that knock. And so she comes immediately to answer the knock. Literally, she obeys the knock. And then it's, it has a, a very endearing and, and humorous aspect to it. When she hears Peter's voice, she becomes so excited that she forgets to let him in the gate. And she goes running back up into the house to tell everybody that he's out there. But Rhoda's, her disposition... Her heart of wanting to hear, of wanting to to answer immediately, her disposition, her attitude, her action toward the knock at the gate, that is biblical obedience in a nutshell. And so we see from Rhoda, first thing is that biblical obedience listens. Rhoda listened because she wanted to hear and she wanted to obey any knock at the gate. A biblically obedient child wants to hear what his parents say and then what God says. Biblical obedience also remembers. This is something we see with the Old Testament and also with the book of Proverbs. You have Solomon telling his son in chapter 3, verse 1, My son, do not forget my law. Remember my law. And you have God constantly telling Israel in the Old Testament, remember my commandments, do not forget. Now, we covered um, last time uh, biblical household rules in imitation of God's. And we saw that God was always imposing affirmative ongoing duties on his children. And, And that's one of the benefits of imitating God in that. Because then it imposes that duty to remember. That's the first step of obedience is to remember. The rules today are the same thing as they were yesterday. That helps you build the walls of Christian character into your children as in they're in the elementary years and on into the team years. They learn responsibility. They learn initiative. They learn being trustworthy. They learn to have a good work ethic and so forth. And so it helps in a lot of ways. We also see from Rhoda that obedience is responsive. It's prompt. Psalm 119, verse 60, I made haste and did not delay to keep your commandments. We see from Rhoda that obedience is cheerful. She wasn't grumbling or unhappy to go to the gate. She's happy to go to the gate. She wants to go and answer it. Psalm 100, verse 2, serve the Lord with gladness. 
Philippians 2, 14 and 15, do all things without grumbling, that is complaining, murmuring, murmuring, grumbling, or disputing, that is arguing. Why? That you may be blameless and innocent children of God. This is what God wants with his children. This is the standard that we should, and the fruit that we should want to see in the children God has given us. And finally, we see from Rhoda that biblical obedience comes from a heart of obedience. It comes from a heart that has already settled the question of obedience. It doesn't wait to receive a command and go, well, will I obey? Will I won't? No, it's already settled on that. That's already been decided. It's a heart of obedience. Psalm 119, 112. I have inclined my heart to perform your statutes forever. The obedience question is already settled. They're just waiting to understand the Lord's will. As Christian parents, the kind of obedience we want to see in our children is the same kind the Lord will want to see in them as adult disciples. We want to train them toward adulthood. And so we want to prepare them for life as adult disciples. And so we want to lay the foundation in the early years so that we can build on it with Christian character in the elementary and teen years, and in the teen years particularly begin to add wisdom. We see Jesus taking a similar approach with his disciples during the three years of his earthly ministry. In John fifteen fourteen, he says to his disciples, now this is on the eve of his crucifixion, this is at the end of his earthly ministry. He says, you are my friends if you do whatever I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for a servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends for all things that I've heard from my father I have made known to you. Now, he's calling them servants. He's not saying that he was treating them like slaves. He was living off of them. He's calling them servants in the sense that, like little children, this is something Paul talks about in Galatians, little children, even a little prince or a little princess who's going to inherit the throne when they are little, they don't get to decide anything. And things are not explained to them. They are told when to go to bed, when to get up, when to eat, when not, what to eat, all of those things. They don't get to decide any of that when they're little. Jesus is referring to that as the early part of his ministry because if you look, he didn't explain a lot of things to them early on. He would give them a lot of commands without any explanation. Follow me. Because at that point, their discipleship demanded that they learn implicit trust and implicit obedience to Jesus. But now at the end of his ministry, they have matured. Jesus is calling them friends. Now they're still under authority, as he mentions, you're my friends if you do whatever I command you. But the difference is, now Jesus is taking them into his counsel. Now Jesus is explaining everything to them so that they can understand. We have the same progression as we're bringing up the children whom God has uh, uh, entrusted to us. So when we have little children... 
you can say, get your coat on, get in the car, we're leaving. And if you have a little a child or an elementary age uh, child who immediately begins to cheerfully comply, they're getting their coat on and so forth, and they say, where are we going? Well, that's fine. That's not a condition of obedience. They're obeying you. They're just curious. They're excited. That's fine to tell them where you're going, unless it's a surprise. You could say it's a surprise. But if you have a child that you say, get your coat on, we're leaving, and they make no move to obey, and they say, where are we going? In other words, this is a condition on their obedience. That's a problem. And so giving them an explanation under that circumstance is not helping them because it's not training them to the kind of obedience that they're going to need to have as an adult disciple. So how do we train a heart of trust, honor, and obedience? In a word, we imitate God because he lays out his parenting for us throughout the scriptures. We imitate God. We do not substitute our own ideas. We do not do whatever seems right to us. If we do that, instead of imitating God, we are going to be off. Not just falling short, but being off. We're going to be skewed. We're going to be imbalanced. And we're going to risk provoking our children to anger. Ephesians 6 verse 4. Now, this is not saying that we as parents need to cater to our children's likes and wishes, as is the spirit of the modern age, so that our, ch- our children never disagree with what we're doing and we're always keeping them uh, satisfied and happy all the time. In fact, Hebrews 12 verse 11 says that the training of the Lord, the way that God does it, does not seem joyful for the present, but painful. In other words, it's not fun. It's only afterwards that it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Now, it's kind of an extreme example, but you can think of like training for Navy SEALs or special forces. They're all happy that they went through it. It was good, but not one second of it was fun. Now, that's an extreme example. Uh, We're bringing children up. It's not quite like that. But the point is that there's a lot of aspects that are training that are simply not fun, but they are good. Paul's parallel command in uh, Colossians 3.21 says, Fathers, do not exasperate your children so that they do not lose heart. What it's talking about here is us substituting our own ideas of training For the Lord's, so that we end up seriously off in such a way that even a godly child would be in danger of losing heart and becoming embittered. The path to follow is imitating God. If we imitate God, then we're bringing up our children in His training and admonition. That's the remedy. So let's ask the question then, what are the elements of God's training? We find them in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 5 through 8. 
And the first element we see here is what you might call the bond or the relationship between God or his children. You can also call it the love bond, the affection that God shows and displays toward his children. You see it in Hebrews 12, verse 5. Here it's quoting Solomon from Proverbs 3. First two words of the Lord's training. My son. First two words. My son. This is Solomon speaking to his son about the training of the Lord. And we see in Proverbs that Solomon is constantly saying, My son. My son. My son. Or my daughter. He's constantly emphasizing and reaffirming that relationship, that bond, that love. It's the basis of everything Solomon does with his son. Because it's the basis of everything God does with his children. Think about it. The baptism of Jesus. A voice from heaven. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. He says that where John the Baptist can hear it. The Mount of Transfiguration, Jesus is there with Peter, James, and John. A voice from heaven, this is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Everything God does with His children is making that point over and over and over. You are my beloved Son. You are my beloved daughter. We want to do the same with our children. That message has to come through. It has to be felt. I am so glad you are my son. I am so glad God gave you to me as my daughter. You can call it love. You can call it affection. You can call it relationship. You can call it bond. But it's the basis for everything. It's the point of everything and it has to come through it has to be the context of everything we do even the tough parts of parental love hebrews 12:5 my son do not despise the chastening literally the training of the lord nor be discouraged when you are rebuked these this is tough love rebuke by him Whomever the Lord loves, he trains and scourges. This is now physical discipline. That's tough love. But what's the context? This is what the Lord does for every son whom he receives. Now, when that message, my son, my daughter, you are my beloved son, you are my beloved daughter, I am so glad God gave you to me. When that is the context of our training, what does it do to the environment of the home? Well, the home environment naturally becomes one of gratitude to God, joy in the Lord's salvation, discipleship from the parents on down, and glad obedience to the Lord. And so that environment becomes a powerful training force in its own right. It becomes a powerful force in showing children the beauty of the Lord and of life as God created it and redeemed it to be. It becomes a powerful force 
and convincing our children that this is life. This is what it's supposed to be. It's a privilege, and I don't want any other life. And that is the only true form of spiritual strength as our children come to face the full gale winds of the world, the flesh, and the devil. So that's the first element of training, that bond, that love, that relationship, that affection. The second element of God's training is simply instruction. You can see that in verse 5 of Hebrews 12 where it speaks of exhortation. That means a word of encouragement, but it includes instruction. It means instruction as a form of encouragement. The third element of the Lord's training is evaluation. You will not see that word here. You will not see the word testing, but it's implicit in Hebrews 12. And we've already talked about it. God wisely and lovingly allows his children to succeed or fail or a little of each so that he can see what's in their heart and he can provide the training and the help that they need. And the fourth and final element is correction, which comes in two different forms. The first is verbal. You see that in verse 5 where it talks about rebukes. That's verbal correction. But then you have physical correction, which you find in the word scourging. It's what the book of Proverbs means when it refers to the rod of correction. It's what we would call paddling. You can see in verse 6, whom the Lord loves, he chastens, he trains, and he scourges, he physically disciplines every son whom he receives. This is quoting Solomon. Now, Solomon explains why in Proverbs 22, verse 15. It says, Folly is bound up in the heart of a child. The rod of correction will drive it far from him. In verse 17, he says, Correct your son, and he will give you rest. Yes, he will give you delight to your soul. Now, folly rhymes with jolly, And so we tend to not take it as seriously as we should. We know it's bad, but we don't think it's that bad. But in the Bible, folly is very bad. It's what makes a fool a fool. And the essence of a fool in the Bible is that he despises wisdom and instruction. Proverbs 1.7. In other words, a fool is unteachable because he's full of his own sense of self-sufficiency. He is wise in his own eyes. He leans on his own understanding, Proverbs 3, 5, and 7. So if a wise man has an argument with a fool trying to get through to him, trying to persuade him according to wisdom and the fear of the Lord, what's the result? The fool only rages and laughs. He mocks, he rages, he laughs, and there is no quiet. In other words, it serves nothing because the fool is full of folly, which is to say he's full of himself and he's unteachable. You can't even have a meaningful conversation with him. Folly in the Bible is the opposite of the fear of the Lord. And the fear of the Lord is first base in the Bible. You don't get anywhere without the fear of the Lord. You don't get to first base, you don't get to second, you don't get to third, and you don't get home. 
So Proverbs 29.15 says, The rod and reproof, that is rebuke, this is the two forms of correction, give wisdom, seeing things from God's perspective, giving the skill to live life as God intended, and thus to live it beautifully. But a child who gets his own way brings shame to his mother. So both forms of correction are necessary in the Bible to give wisdom to a child. And the rod of the correction is the only thing that is specifically identified by Solomon as a tool to drive folly out and away from the heart of a child. So Solomon says, he who withholds his rod hates his son. Now he is not saying that this father or mother is revolted by their son, is revulsed by their son, has feelings of intense animosity toward their son. No, he's not saying that. What he's saying is the parent who withholds the rod is not objectively seeking the objective good and blessing of their child. And in the Bible, love seeks the objective good and blessing of the person. That is the absolute requisite for love in the Bible. Affection is another aspect, but you can have affection in the Bible without love. And so in the Bible, to put things in stark terms, if you're not seeking someone's objective good and blessing, it says, well, you hate them. Because you're not seeking their good and, uh, and blessing. That's what he's saying about the parent who withholds the rod. But he who loves him disciplines him diligently. That doesn't mean harshly. That means basically in imitation of God. Do what God does. Do it in the same proportion, the same way that God does. And so now to us, when you look at these four elements, the first element of training, that love bond that says you are my beloved son or daughter, that just doesn't seem to go with the last element, which is correction and especially the rod of correction. Those two don't seem to go together. And so we as parents, naturally, for each one of us, certain elements of God's training are going to come easier to us than others. Some are going to be hard for us. Some we like, usually because they're easy. Some we don't like because they're hard. And it's mostly the first and the last. Instruction and then evaluation, that everybody can usually deal with those. But when it comes to communicating that love bond, that affection... And when it comes to correction, and particularly the rod of correction, most all of us are going to have at least one of those that's going to be difficult. Those are the ones. And so our temptation is, every single one of us is, I'm just going to focus on the one I like. (laughs) The one that comes easier to me. Either expressing the affection or maybe being a disciplinarian. I'm just going to focus on that. I'm going to double up on that and kind of let the other one go. Or at least major in this one and then minor in this one. And I'll just make up for the lack. It's not the way parenting works. It's about imitating God. 
It's not about us picking and choosing or majoring and minoring. And yes, we will be called to do things that are difficult for us, things that we look at and just go, man, I just don't know if I can do that. Well, you know something? The Christian life is basically a series of impossible things that God is calling us to do. It's a series of things that God is calling us to do that we have absolutely zero power to do. Welcome to the Christian life. That's what it is. Over and over and over, we have to just come to the Lord in prayer and we just have to just take that step. Here goes. I think this is going to be a disaster, but... We have to take that step. That's what the Christian life is, and it's certainly the case in parenting. And it doesn't seem like these two elements really go with one another, but the Bible makes it clear we need both of those elements. We need to blend them the way God does with his children. So all the elements of God's training need to be present and blended in imitation of God, or else... The message of you are my beloved son or daughter gets hollowed out. That's counterintuitive to us, but that's the way it works. If we leave any element out, if we major in one and minor in another, what it subliminally communicates to our children is that you're not really my child. Proverbs, I mean, Hebrews 12, verse 8 If you are without chastening, training, all four elements, then you are illegitimate and not sons. In other words, it's a form of disownment. It's a form of disownment. Um, For many years before I became a pastor, I worked in the criminal justice system. And one of the things that I saw was that some of the angriest teenagers, so full of anger and rage, were from wealthy families. And from one perspective, they had everything, everything they could want. Their parents showered it upon them. The one thing they didn't have was discipline. And those those teenagers instinctively knew that they were being disowned. And that's why they were so full of rage. Because they knew there was no one in this entire world who loved them enough to tell them no and make it stick and enforce it. And they were just full of bitterness and anger and rage. So, we want to lay a biblical foundation in the early years. We want to instill a heart of biblical obedience in our little ones, like Rhoda answering the knock in Acts chapter 12. And we want to use all four elements of God's training the same way, the same blend that He does. The love bond, you are my beloved son or daughter, instruction, evaluation. Correction, verbal calling to account and rebuke and correction, physically with the rod of correction, or you could say the paddle, to drive out the folly from the heart. 
So um, next week, this week, I'm going to be gone to Presbyterian Council. And Jeff Francian is going to bring us a message next week. He's going to be talking about family worship, which is part of that household environment that we want to create for our family and our children to be built up. So he will be bringing the word um, next week, and then I will be back the following week, and we will be picking up where we have left off. I commit all of these things to you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.